Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 24, Deuteronomy chapters 19 and 20. We finished up chapter 18 of Deuteronomy last week, which completed the section that described the four mean types of human governmental authorities that um, God ordained to rule over Israel. Kings and prophets and judges and priests. And as we begin chapter 19 today, we enter a three-chapter section that deals with matters that fall under the control of these various governmental authorities. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. We're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 218. Follow along with me. When Adonai your God cuts off the nation's whose land Adonai your God is giving you, and you take their place and settle in their cities and houses. You are to set aside three cities for yourselves in your land that Adonai your God is giving you to possess. Divide the territory of your land which Adonai your God is having you inherit into three parts and prepare the roads so that any killer can flee to these cities. The killer who will live in, live if he flees there is someone who has killed his fellow member of the community by mistake, who did not hate him in the past. An example would be, if a man goes into a forest with his neighbor to cut wood and takes a stroke with the axe to fell a tree, but the head of the axe flies off the handle, hits his neighbor and kills him, then he is to flee to one of these cities and live there. Otherwise... The next of kin avenger in the heat of his anger may pursue the killer and overtake him because the distance to the city of refuge is long and strike him dead, even though he didn't deserve to die inasmuch as he hadn't hated him in the past. This is why I'm ordering you to set aside for yourself three cities. If Adonai your God expands your territory as he swore to your ancestors that he would, and he gives you all the land he promised to give to your ancestors, provided you keep and observe all these mitzvot, all these commands I am giving you today, loving Adonai, your God, and always following his ways, then you are to add three more cities for yourselves besides these three, so that innocent blood will not be shed in the land Adonai, your God, is giving you in his inheritance, and thus blood guilt be on you. However, if someone hates his fellow member of the community, lies in wait for him, attacks him, strikes him a death blow, and then flees into one of these cities. Then the leaders of his own town are to send and bring him back from there, hand him over to the next of kin avenger to be put to death. You're not to pity him. Rather, you must put an end to the shedding of innocent blood in Israel. Then things will go well with you. You're not to move your neighbor's boundary marker from the place where people put put it long ago in the inheritance soon to be yours in the land Adonai your God is giving you to possess. One witness alone will not be sufficient to convict a person of any offense or sin of any kind. 
The matter will be established only if there are two or three witnesses testifying against him. If a malicious witness comes forward and he gives false testimony against someone, then both the men involved in the controversy are to stand before Adonai, before the Kohanim, before the priests, and the judges in office at the time. The judges are to investigate carefully. If they find that the witness is lying and has given false testimony against his brother, you're to do to him what he intended to do to his brother. In this way, you will put an end to such wickedness among you. Those who remain will hear about it, be afraid, and no longer commit such wickedness among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This chapter begins with the words, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you. This gives me an opportunity to remind you of something that we haven't discussed for a while. And it's critical to our understanding of Deuteronomy. What this first verse is bringing to mind is that even though it is the 600,000 man army of Israel that is about to enter into battle to conquer the land of Canaan, this is actually the Lord's war. Therefore, whereas a general of an army might promise his people that he is going to lead the army into battle and see to it that the enemy is defeated, here, Yehovah assumes the role is the one who leads the Hebrew army into battle and states as much, states as much by saying, when the Lord your God, as the leader of the army, has cut off, he's defeated the nations. See, it's God who is making war, not the people of Israel. And since a holy God is initiating this war, it is by definition a holy war. And since it is a holy war, there are certain rules of holy warfare that God lays down that are quite different from normal and typical human warfare such as we faced in World War II and Korea and Vietnam, now Iraq, Afghanistan. But what is holy war? Now in our generation... We think of a holy war as either something from 900 years or so on our past, like the Crusades, or something that we're currently defending ourselves from, Islamic Jihad, Islamic holy war against Christians and Jews. Now let me assure you that neither of those things represents biblically true holy war. Holy war, real holy war, is entirely biblical and holy war is what Israel was about to wage on God's behalf as they approached the promised land led by Moses and then later by his protege Joshua. But let me also tell you what holy war is not. Holy war from a biblical standpoint is not about spreading the religion. 
it's not about forcing a different belief system upon others. One of the earliest principles of the Hebrew religion was that submission to it was to be completely voluntary. And thus, even the concept of proselytizing that's become so central to Christianity was not practiced by Israel. Now, we're going to talk about this some more at the appropriate time. But please grasp that a holy war is a war that God starts. And he finishes it according to his will. Our revolutionary war was a war of good cause, but it wasn't a holy war. Some folks who wanted to be free from a king started it. World War II was not a holy war. The Japanese and Germans started it and other nations responded. The Crusades was not a series of holy wars, even though many called it so. Some Catholic popes and some European noblemen started it and simply attached God's name to it. Though to be sure, these were wars about religion. The Bible discusses two true holy wars. And I'm assuming that these two are all there will ever be in all of history. The holy war for the conquest of Canaan and the holy war for planet Earth that as of late has come to be called the Battle of Armageddon. Also understand that so far as we know, the men and women of Israel at this time of Deuteronomy didn't have anything personally against any of the Canaanite nations. And generally speaking, none of the Canaanite nations had anything particularly personal against Israel. Up to this point, these nations weren't historical antagonists. This whole thing was on God. The God of Israel declared that the residents of Canaan were his enemies. And that the land they occupied was his land that he had set apart for occupation by his chosen people, Israel. And it was time for it to be turned over to him. And that he would achieve that goal by means of warfare if need be, and it was. (laughs) Israel's army was God's earthly instrument of wrath and destruction upon a people, Canaan, that the Lord concluded was wicked and deserving of annihilation. Let me put this another way. Israel did not have an inherent anger or hatred towards the people of Canaan. And the people of Canaan did not have some pent-up anger or hatred towards the people of Israel. Up to now neither had harmed or threatened each other. Now this realization goes a long way in helping us to understand both Israel's reluctance to want to go to war with the various 
peoples who lived in Canaan in the first place. And it explains Joshua's bent towards making peace treaties with the diverse city-states of Canaan rather than driving them out or killing them if they refused to accept Israel's rule over them and the prohibition against continuing to worship their false gods. And all this was as God instructed Israel to do. Jehovah says that once his holy war is concluded with victory and his chosen people, Israel, are living in these formerly Canaanite cities and towns, the leaders of Israel are to set aside three of those captured cities as designated cities of refuge, also called sanctuary cities. Here is yet another case of God dividing, electing, and separating one of his fundamental divine principles. Now let's be, let's be clear. Sometime earlier, Moses had been instructed to set up three cities of refuge in the uh, Transjordan region, which Israel now possessed, and from which Israel would launch their attack on into Canaan. The Transjordan region is that area east of the Jordan River. These three cities mentioned here in verse 2 are to be established as the first three sanctuary cities located in the west bank of the Jordan River. And they're to be carefully chosen so that, as it says in verse 3, they each serve about a third of the Holy Land. The idea is that these sanctuary cities will be centrally located such that a Hebrew needing to go to one of these cities for protection doesn't have to travel any farther than necessary so he can get there quickly before the blood avenger can catch him. Now we've read in the past that 48 Levitical cities are to be established throughout the 12 tribal territories that make up the Israelite confederacy. These three cities on the west side... Um, and the three previously established on the east side of the Jordan comprise six of the planned 48 Levitical cities. But these six cities have a unique purpose. They are a place where a person who has killed someone might flee and avoid being killed in retribution by that dead person's relatives. Now, these six cities were safe zones. And the killer would be protected by the Levites who owned and governed those cities. But there was a caveat. The killer had to have killed without intention to kill. Now, we call this kind of act in our day manslaughter. Now, verse 5 even goes so far as to give a definite example of of the kind of killer that rightfully belongs within the walls of a city of refuge. A man swings an axe to cut down a tree. The axe head accidentally comes loose and flies off and as an innocent bystander is struck and killed. Terrible accident. 
Now, the man who swung the axe is unlikely to receive understanding from the relatives of the mortally wounded innocent bystander. It was simply traditional Middle Eastern culture of that day. In many areas of the Middle East, it's still this way. That a person who is responsible for the death of another under any circumstance must be in turn hunted down and killed by the deceased's survivors. It was their honor-bound duty to do it. Not to do so was a terrible slight on the life of the departed. The relative whose duty it is to find and kill the perpetrator, no matter how innocent the perpetrator, is called a blood avenger. In Hebrew, he is the goel, or better, the goel hadam, the redeemer of the blood. Now, the six cities of refuge that the Lord provided for Israel were an answer for this patently unfair an unreasonable custom of blood revenge for an even accidental killing. The idea was that the killer would immediately run for one of these sanctuary cities upon killing somebody. If he made it, he was safe. Therefore, we discussed the concern that the six cities of refuge be pretty evenly spread out, roads built to them so that they were accessible. However, if the blood avenger caught up to him and killed him before he made it to safe sanctuary, it was perfectly legal for that blood avenger to kill him. Yes, it is an interesting fact that while we find a law giving the unintentional killer a safe haven, we do not find a law that restrains the blood avenger from killing the man if he can get to him before he arrives at the city of refuge. Now in verse 8, the time is contemplated when the Lord will enlarge Israel's territorial holdings and when he does that, three additional cities of refuge are to be established, bringing the total to nine. And by the way, there is no evidence that the final three cities of refuge were ever put into operation. This ends the first case that this chapter discusses, the case of the accidental killer. Now, the second case begins in verse 11. And it's kind of the antithesis of the first one. It defines premeditated murder intentional and unjust killing. The killer has no right to safe haven in a city of refuge. Rather, the elders of the town he belongs to are to travel to the city of refuge if he's escaped there, lied about his circumstances, and is seeking refuge. And they arrest him. And they turn him over to the family Goel the blood avenger, who then legally executes the killer, thus respecting the traditions and customs of that era. Now, although it's not stated, the reason the town elders are sent to make the arrest 
is because they are the officials who are authorized to investigate and try legal cases. And if they find it is indeed a case of murder, then they will turn the murder over to the blood avenger for justice, or if they find the killing was accidental, then they'll safely escort the killer back to the sanctuary city. Now, there are a couple of important principles from prior teachings that are at the heart of this city, of the, rather the system of cities of refuge and blood avengers. First, it is a principle that intentional sins, a, co- a classification of sins called intentional sins, are not covered by the Levitical sacrificial system. And second is that any sin not covered by the sacrificial system requires the blood, requires the life of the criminal trespasser as payment. Now I receive questions about this all the time. Okay, so let me summarize this very briefly. If a sin can be atoned for by means of an animal sacrifice, and the Torah defines which can and which cannot, then other than for some additional kind of personal reparations paid to the victim, the perpetrator can be forgiven by the Lord and by the community. But, when there is a crime committed whereby the law of Moses requires the execution of the perpetrator. Then you have a crime for which no provision for substitutionary atonement is available. The crime falls outside the ability and purpose of the God-ordained sacrificial system to save you by means of atonement. Murder is such a crime as is idolatry. One cannot commit either of these crimes in Israel and then atone for them by means of an animal sacrifice. Instead, the price that is owed to God is your own blood, your own life. Here's a good rule to remember about blood. Only innocent blood can atone for sin. Innocent blood. Now, I've heard a few teach that in the Bible era when a murderer had his blood spilled, that to the Lord this was a form of atonement. That is not true. That's just a complete misreading. The blood of a guilty can never atone for anything. Blood spilling has two major aspects. One is that the blood of the guilty party is required by God as reparation, a price to be paid to God for sin. What do we read in the New Testament? The wages of sin is what? Death. The other aspect is that the blood of the innocent is required to atone for the sins that the Lord has decided can be atoned for, thereby allowing the guilty person to live. 
So on an animal sacrifice, the guilt of the human sinner is symbolically transferred and laid upon the sacrificial animal that otherwise is innocent. When that innocent animal's blood is spilled, it, it, it serves both as a substitute for the required payment to God of the blood of the life of the guilty party, and it is the spilled blood of the innocent that is the means of atonement that leads to forgiveness for the guilty party. What a system of justice. Now the goel, this blood avenger we've been talking about, in God's economy is not doing anything wrong. He is simply acting as God's agent to satisfy God's justice of taking the life of the murderer as reparation. But at the same time, no atonement, no forgiveness from the Lord is possible because of the deliberate and high-handed nature of the sin. Now the good news for us is that Messiah Yeshua's blood can, generally speaking, make atonement even for the classification of sins called intentional sins that the sacrificial system was ever designed to atone for. Yeshua is our safe haven. He is our city of refuge from the blood avenger, even for premeditated murder. That is why Christ's sacrifice is superior to the animal sacrifices. Now, of course, this atonement of sins isn't automatic. One must declare with their mouth and believe in their mind that Yeshua is Lord and Savior. In effect, one is telling the Father that you are resting on the sacrifice of Yeshua to atone for your sins, intentional or unintentional. Further, there is another important requirement. You must confess and sincerely repent for your sins. One without the other is not effective. Interestingly, this same requirement of sincere repentance was needed for the Old Testament sacrificial system to be effective for the sinner as well. Now, I reviewed these principles of blood and sacrifice for this reason. The New Testament did not nullify the teaching of the Old Testament in regard to the blood avenger. Okay, Listen to the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.26 If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. In the Levitical sacrificial system, deliberate, intentional sins had no means for atonement. And in the same pattern, even though Yeshua can rescue us, even from deliberate sins, sins the sacrificial system could not, 
there comes a point when the Father determines that since we know the truth, that Jesus is Savior and we need to be saved, and we just keep right on sinning deliberately, that our repentance must not be sincere. And therefore, even Messiah's blood can't atone for that. All that awaits us in that circumstance is judgment and the raging fire of our eternal destruction. God's always been the ultimate blood avenger. Now, let me also take a moment to repeat something I've said on numerous occasions, but invariably I'm confronted with it after a lesson on the subject of blood and murder. The forgiveness that Yeshua makes available for us is of a spiritual nature. The idea is not that the earthly consequences for our actions are now canceled. There's many things we can do that the Lord will forgive us for, but the state of Florida won't. It's wonderful beyond words that a perpetrator of the most heinous crime can see their wrong, come to Messiah, repent and confess and change and trust God, but in no way does the Bible contemplate that this means that you avoid the criminal justice system. A repentant Christian murderer must die. Otherwise, the entire community remains in blood guilt because the Lord's justice wasn't carried out. Now, the Lord's justice system always has and still does consist of a spiritual and a physical component. Yeshua's sacrifice paid for the spiritual component of God's justice. The physical component of God's system of justice is supposed to be carried out through human government. Just as human government cannot provide spiritual atonement for a criminal, God's spiritual forgiveness does not provide for cancellation of the physical punishment that's due that same criminal, no matter how spiritually repentant and forgiven he or she may be in heaven. Now, two interesting things are said in verse 13 that concludes the matter of murder and the goel. First is that the murder is to be shown no pity. And second is that by executing the murderer, the blood of the innocent victim is purged from Israel. Now, the point of saying no pity is that Yehovah wants to make clear that a murderer is never to be spared out of, of love or a feeling that the penalty is too harsh for the crime. The Lord understands that the murderer probably has many people who love him. And he further understands that such love by a family or a community might cause them to have pity on him and commute his sentence. But biblically speaking, this is forbidden. 
Why? Because of a never-changing God principle that we've encountered in numerous Torah passages. That the shedding of innocent blood, a murder victim, creates blood guilt upon the entire community. It pollutes the land. And that blood guilt rests upon that entire community and it's lifted only when the perpetrator's guilty blood is shed, not in atonement, but in reparation. This provision has never been annulled. We live with it even today. You see, what is at stake here is the carrying out of God's justice system. Now, next Deuteronomy 19 takes a a sharp turn and addresses two totally different subjects, boundary markers and the witnesses to crimes. Now, since time immemorial, piles of stones were used as um, boundary lines for real property. And verse 14 makes it a serious moral offense for a person to move a boundary marker of his neighbor's property so he can expand his own. Now, what makes it so serious among Israel is that we have already had a a law established that land was to remain with a Hebrew family, clan, and tribe in perpetuity. The laws of the Sabbath year of the Jubilee and the kinsman redeemer all had as their goal the return or retention of land to their original Hebrew owner. So for someone to move a boundary marker thereby taking a portion of somebody else's land was to defy the system that God had established. This was a crime against the Lord far more than it was a crime against an individual. Now, verse 15 sets up a fail-safe system meant to prevent wrongful conviction on the basis of either little to no evidence or false or mistaken testimony. And provision number one is that the testimony of one witness only is not sufficient to convict the accused. Two witnesses are required, and and by the way, two's not the ideal number, it's the minimum. Okay. However, reality is that it did happen, that a single witness would come forward and make an accusation, and this would spark an investigation and maybe a trial. Witnesses, you see, perform several functions in the biblical justice system. A witness often was the one who brought the charges against somebody in the first place. Or a witness could have been a person who had some pertinent knowledge about the case. Further, a witness in a capital case was often the prime executioner, whether they wanted to be or not. Now the next several verses deal with the matter of false witnesses. That is, a person who knowingly makes a false charge against somebody or gives deliberately 
false testimony against the accused for any number of reasons. Now, if the court, which typically consists of priests and appointed laymen, investigates and determines that the witness intentionally gave false testimony, then the false witness was to bear the same punishment that the accused person would have had to bear if they had been convicted of that crime. I love it. I love it. How many maliciously false police reports and lying witnesses do you suppose we'd have today if the person who lied intentionally, I'm not talking about making an error, lied intentionally and caused an innocent person to go to jail had to serve the same amount of time in jail as the crime they falsely reported. I think that put a stop to it. This biblical law even went so far as to demand the death penalty for a witness who falsely and knowingly accused somebody of a capital crime. Now let me state clearly that in general, this false testimony was by definition intentional lying, not some kind of mistaken identity or or, or simple error. And as the reason for this rather harsh consequence for the false witness, we have only to refer to the God pattern we've read about over and over again. By doing to that false witness what he'd scheme to do to his victim, others will be too afraid to try the same thing and thus such evil things will not happen within that community anymore. Wow! Such common sense. The today's social engineers and criminal justice system tries to sell us would never work. We're told that harsh sentences for people who do such things only make society worse. God says, no. No. Humans being what we are, we need a healthy fear to make us think twice about giving false testimony. And his system works towards purging this kind of evil from society. Chapter 19 ends with the formulation that scholars call lex talionis. We call it the classic eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle that has been so severely twisted and incorrectly applied for centuries. Notice that in this instance, the principle is being directly applied to the crime of perjury. Okay, This is all about what you do with a false witness. This formula was not to be taken literally, nor was it for the purpose of personal vengeance. It was an idiom. It was an idiom. Mutilation, a hand for a hand. Okay, Mutilation as a punishment was strictly forbidden in God's laws. So if you poke somebody's eye out, even intentionally, Never in the law of Moses was that person allowed to poke your eye out in return. Rather, you see, this is a statement that actually puts boundaries around the severity 
of a punishment as well as the limits on the commutation of sentences. See, basically the notion is the punishments to fit the crime. We're talking about proportionality. A person shouldn't lose their land because they stole a goat. A person shouldn't be beaten because he can't pay a monetary debt. And most importantly, a person shouldn't lose their life for a property crime or because they harmed, but they didn't kill somebody. See? Proportionality. That's the whole point of an eye for an eye. And at the same time, a person who committed premeditated murder was not to escape. He wasn't to escape execution by, let's say, paying a fine. Okay. Nor was a person who would intentionally maim somebody else able to give the injured party some paltry payment and call it even. Now I want to say something now that we'll come back to later. The principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, was only meant to apply to criminal and to civil cases. This was not a principle of how we humans are to operate within our personal relationships. How we treat one another and deal with personal issues that don't involve criminality was totally outside this concept. The idea, for instance, it, is that if somebody verbally insults you, you're not free and justified insulting him back. Let me say that again. Lex talionis, an eye for an eye, is about God's justice system. It's not about interpersonal relationships. Now, Israel had a pretty bad habit of mixing the two up. Christians often get it pretty confused. And Jesus had an awful lot to say about it. Let's move on to uh, chapter 20. We're going to read the first ten verses of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Page 218 in your complete Jewish Bible. When you go out to fight your enemies and see horses and chariots and a force larger than yours, you're not to be afraid of them. Because Adonai, your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you're about to go into battle, the Kohen, the priest, is to come forward and address the people. He should tell them, listen Israel, you're about to do battle against your enemies. Don't be faint-hearted or afraid. Don't be alarmed or frightened by them because Adonai, your God, is going to go with you to fight on your behalf against your enemies and give you victory. Then the officials will speak to the soldiers and they're to say, Is there a man here who has built a new house but hasn't dedicated it yet? Then he should go back home now. Otherwise he may die fighting and another man will dedicate it. Now, is there a man here who's planted a vineyard, but he hasn't met, uh, yet made use of its fruit? Then he should go back home. Otherwise, he may die fighting, and another man will use it. Is there a man here who's engaged to a woman, but hasn't married her yet? Then he should go back home. Otherwise, he may die fighting, and another man will marry her. Now, the officials will then add 
to what they have said to the soldiers, is there a man here who's afraid and faint-hearted? He should go back home. Otherwise, his fear may demoralize his comrades as well. And when the officials have finished speaking with the soldiers, commanders are to be appointed to lead the army. I'll stop there. Chapter 20 is about about how Israel is to prepare for war, holy war. Now, I want to stress this again. While it would not be wrong to choose to use these instructions in preparation for most any kind of armed conflict, these instructions are specifically about fighting a holy war that God ordains. Men have no authority to declare a war as holy, even if they believe that their cause is just and righteous. The Israelis, at the time they entered Canaan, were nomads. They didn't have chariots and horses that pulled them. For this era, the 13th, 14th century B.C., Chariots were fearsome technological advances because they were used against foot soldiers. Chariots were the tanks of that era. They were basically quick-moving platforms from which fairly standard weapons could be launched. At this time, usually spears and arrows. The use of chariots brought a tremendous advantage on the battlefield. But facilities and know-how were needed to manufacture this device of war. And Israel was in no position to do that. But the Canaanites did have chariots. Therefore, the Lord first deals with the mental, the psychological side of warfare, fear. On the one hand, the Lord acknowledges that Israel will be going up against armed forces which may be larger than Israel's and will have technological superiority. However, verse 1 tells Israel to recall what happened in Egypt. Israel not only had no weapons, it had no army. Israel had no ability to protect itself, to free itself from Egypt. God simply brought a superior earthly power to its knees in supernatural ways. Therefore, since God is with Israel and it is God's holy war in the first place, Israel has nothing to fear from the vast armies they're going to face. Before the battle begins, God's representatives, his servants, the priests, come forward. They address the troops. And naturally, because this is a holy war, the holy priests will be at the center of all that's going to happen. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, priests are present at the battles. Part of their jobs was to blow trumpets to both exhort God to help Israel and to deliver signals to the troops. 
And unfortunately, the English translations usually mask something that we ought to pay attention to. Do you recall our earlier study in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about a title, uh, rather about a section that has been titled the Shema? Now sometimes this is called the Hear, O Israel. Shema is a powerful Hebrew word that, that means much more than just to listen. Okay? It, it, it's it's anything but a formal beginning to a speech. Okay? It includes the command inherently to obey. And here in verse 3, the Lord says that before the various battles of the holy war commence, the priest, meaning the high priest, in this case, is to walk forward and declare, Shema Israel, hear O Israel, hear and obey what is about to be said. And because the first issue is about fear, the Lord tells the Israeli troops through the high priest not to fear in four different ways. Don't let your heart be faint. Don't be afraid of the battle. Don't be alarmed. That is, don't panic. And don't be frightened of the enemy soldiers. Don't be in dread of the Canaanites. And the thing they can count on is that the Lord's going to lead them to victory. It's a certainty. The game is rigged. <laughs> After the priests have brought God's message to the troops, the officials now speak to the soldiers. And the message concerns three possible deferments from the coming battle that are available to the younger members of the Israeli army. Now these officials aren't the army commanders. They are the civilian authorities. Or there is some thought that these might even be Levites who are kind of interwoven into governmental and religious authority. In any case, they are not army officers. And they are not the priests who gave the exhortation to do not fear. And the first possible reason for a, a soldier to be excused from the battle is that a young man might have a home that hasn't been officially dedicated, and so if he dies in battle, somebody else might gain possession of it. Now I'm going to tell you right up front that there is much disagreement in the Bible academic community about just what that means. There's no mention in the Hebrew Bible of the dedicating of a house or any ritual that might be associated with it. So it might not be indicating what it kind of sounds like. It might simply mean that he has recently established his own new household. He's recently married and he's yet to start a family. If his wife, you see, was widowed before they had children, then the household might wind up in the possession of another person, and in Middle Eastern tradition, that's a really serious matter. But these are just educated speculations. The second possible reason that somebody might get a military deferral is that he's planted a new vineyard, but hasn't yet partaken of, of, of the produce from it. 
Now, various translations will say, but he hasn't harvested it, or as our complete Jewish Bible says, he hasn't eaten of it. Now, a couple things about this statement. Number one, obviously, this holy war that's being talked about is going to go on over an extended period of time. This is speaking of a time just around the corner for these Israelites, after they've settled in Canaan, because these nomadic Hebrews certainly have not stopped to plant vineyards as they go along. Okay. However, once they enter Canaan, they're going to at first take over already established vineyards, and then they're going to add to them. But here's the thing. We need to understand the law of Moses if we're going to understand what the reason for this particular deferral is actually dealing with. Okay. The Hebrew word typically translated as harvested or in our complete Jewish Bible is eaten in this verse is hilelo. And it means desacralize it. Don't let that big word throw you. Okay. To sacralize something is to make that thing holy. You make it sacred. To desacralize something is to take something that's holy and then make it common. Not unclean, not bad, just not holy. Just not set apart for God anymore. So what does this mean that the young man who has planted a new vineyard has not made his vineyard not holy? That's a strange concept. Well, here's what it is. Whether it's the fruit of the vine, grapes, or the fruit of the orchard, the law is that the fruit isn't to be picked and eaten for the first three years after that vine or tree is planted. Only in the fifth year after planting may the owner of the fruit eat his produce. Listen to Leviticus 19.23. When you come into the land, right? They were nomads. When you come into the land and you plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count that fruit as forbidden. Three years it'll be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year, all the fruit shall be holy, sacred. It shall be an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of the fruit that they may yield more richly for you. I'm the Lord your God. So, all this is talking about is the law of Moses. For the first three years, the fruit is totally forbidden to be eaten, meaning it can't be used for any purpose. Matter of fact, it can't even be picked and set apart for God. Then in the fourth year, the fruit is therefore declared holy. It's sacralized. It's set apart for God. All of it, the whole harvest, goes to God in the fourth year. And then in the fifth year, the fruit is now no longer holy. It's desacralized. No longer set apart for God, so it can be eaten. You see this? 
Now the idea of this particular cause then for military deferral is that the new vineyard has to be five years old already whereby the young man's finally able to make use of its produce from all of his toil and work. Otherwise this young soldier can choose not to fight but to go back home and wait until the fifth year. So this law actually even gives us a time frame, think about this, to show that God's telling Israel that the holy war for Canaan is going to go on for a long time. It's going to go on for years and years such that new fields and vineyards and orchards are going to be planted, they're going to mature during the time of the holy war in Canaan. Now the third deferral for a young soldier is stated in verse 7. It is that a man who is engaged to be married, he's betrothed, but the marriage has not yet been consummated, does not have to fight. Because if he dies, then the price he paid for his bride would be wasted. Well, I can understand that. And another man would get all the benefit. can understand that too. Now, why is this so terribly important? Okay. We have records from Mesopotamian societies of that same era that basically offers the exact same thing to their young soldiers. And the reason for it has to do with the superstitions and the belief that engaged, betrothed, but not yet married men were particularly subject to demonic influences. So it was best for all that they not be part of the army. Women take that for what you will. (laughs) Now another possibility is that it was believed among the Hebrews that what passed for continued existence after death, life after death, was that a man's life essence lived on in his offspring, in his children. So since married couples in that era in particular began having children immediately, if at all possible, Part of the goal of having children was that if the man died, his life essence wouldn't end. But it would continue on in his children. Therefore, an engaged but not yet married Hebrew soldier risked having his life essence permanently terminated. No life after death if he hadn't yet had a chance to produce children. It's the officials, government officials' job to go around asking the troops if anybody would like to take advantage of any of these deferrals and then they determine their eligibility. A young man who was simply too frightened to fight qualified for deferral because such a man would just be a discouragement, it says, to all the other soldiers. 
And we'll continue in Deuteronomy 20 next week and talk a little bit more about the Lord's parameters for engaging in holy war.